Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different women come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it impacts our lives. This summer, we are doing a special three-part series based on the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I'm Vanessa Hawkins, and joining me for this last installment of our summer series are Amber Barrett, Beth Benson, and Morgan Lloyd. Hey, ladies. Hey, Vanessa. Our favorite question of the day is, what are your favorite ways to beat the heat in the summer? I'm going to jump in on this one. <laughs> I beat you, Ben. <laughs> I beat you. I don't know if you're going to say the same thing as me, but I was trying to think about something really clever, and at the end of the day, it just came down to air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, I Amber. I love me some air conditioning <laughs> in the summertime, and mm-hmm. I'd like to turn it down lower in our house than my husband would prefer, <laughs> but I like it in my car. I had one summer where the air conditioning in my car did not work, and that was pretty miserable. So I love some air conditioning and then smoothies. I do love smoothies, but I don't eat them in the wintertime because I don't, I don't like cold on cold, but I like cold and hot. Yeah. So I tend to drink a lot of smoothies and enjoy the air conditioning. You, your, you can go, but not bad. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. Make your own smoothie, Smoothie King? Or? No, I make my own smoothies. Okay. Vitamix has revolutionized my world. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I really don't enjoy the heat. In fact, I really don't like going to the beach that much just because of the the sun just beating down on you the whole time. So I find it in two ways. One would be a nice cold beverage. Um, Last year, while we were working from home, my husband and I went every single day. This is so bad. Every single day we went to Chick-fil-A and I got a half sweet, half unsweet tea and he got a Coke Zero. (laughs) Nice. And it really helped with like fighting the heat and all of that because we were really enjoying working outside and during the spring and early summer. So it would be cold beverages like a nice cold water or an ice cold tea, and then eating copious amounts of ice cream. Copious. <laughs> that would be the other one. That's a good word for ice cream. Uh, I'm also lactose intolerant, so it'd be copious, <laughs> oh, copious amounts of ice cream followed or. In conjunction with my lactate pill. <laughs> Not followed by. Kept the lactate <laughs> business. Kept the lactate people in business. Keep your priorities straight. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I actually don't mind the heat. Now, the, the southern southeast heat is a little horrendous, but I have this love-hate relationship with it because everywhere in the south is so freezing cold inside. Like, church. <laughs> that is true, yeah. <laughs> Sitting in church, I'm often very distracted by how cold I am. I'm like, why is it this cold in here? I thought you were going to talk about the humidity. You're talking about the AC that the Amber AC loves. because I'm back there on the dial turning it down. But I, um, I often look forward to opening the doors and walking out to that wave uh-huh. of heat just to refresh me from the cold. But then the humidity does get you, and it. You know, Oaks it you ruins your hair. Oaks it you. makes you sweat, pa- have sweat patterns on your <laughs> nice church clothes. <laughs> and when TMI, I, Morgan, TMI. When I was uh, working and going to school at Vanderbilt, it's very, um, we get all four seasons there, but as soon as the heat comes, it really comes. And you always have to park really far from the building where you work. And I would be sweaty by the time I got to my building. And then I would get up to my office and now I'm wet and in the AC. So I'm like shivering. It's like this crazy, uncomfortable thing. So I think truly the best way, the best, the very most refreshing thing in the summer is an ice cold Diet Coke 
<laughs> and just the carbonation of it and my addiction to it <laughs> and the coldness of it combines to just be just so refreshing and I love it. You are hilarious. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, today we're discussing the final seven chapters of Gentle and Lowly. It has been such a sweet series. I've enjoyed hanging out with you ladies. Um, we're moving right into chapter 17, which is ways about our ways. And the, the premise of this chapter is that we tend to project our expectations about who God is unto him instead of allowing him to be who he is in scripture. Particularly, Ortland invites us to consider Isaiah 55 and 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And so as a statement of how tiny our natural views are of God and, and his great compassion is towards us. So the way in which his thoughts are higher than ours is that we do not realize just how low he delights to come, Portland reminds us. So ladies, prior to reading this chapter, how had you thought about or perhaps used the statement, his ways are not our ways? Had you used it to describe his depth of compassion toward us? Talk to me about how you've used it. I think I've typically used it to describe his mystery or his plan, or even just a blanket statement for when I can't know what God is thinking. Um, it was kind of a go-to for me in situations where things didn't work out. Um, I think I used it a lot, though mainly it was for plans. Like, oh, well, you know, you didn't get that job. Well, his ways are not our ways. Oh, well, this terrible thing happened. His ways are not our ways. I, I think I, I never, definitely never used it for compassion. My primary use was as a band-aid or just like a comforting statement, just like to put a little, little thing on a little, bring a little God into the situation. Um, that was the main way that I had used it. I think that's, that's super common. Mm -hmm. I think it's challenging us to think about it in different ways. Yes, definitely. What about you, Amber? Yeah, I think in part that's that what you said about mystery, Beth. I would mm -hmm. often apply that that verse or that concept of those words to the idea that there God does move in mysterious ways, and I think I would think of those as positive ways that He's moving. But I had never connected it to those verses that are in front of it: that seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near, let the wicked forsake His ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that's what he follows up with, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. And that we don't return to God for him to abundantly pardon, that we don't treat others that way, we don't treat ourselves that way, because those aren't our thoughts. We don't have those types of thoughts as far as that the Lord is so much more compassionate than we are. That was helpful for me to realize that I'm, I'm personally prone to believe the wrong thing. And like you said, oftentimes it just comes from our sense of who we think God is as opposed to a biblical sense biblical sense of who God is. But then it's even a good answer for all, I feel like the uh, challenge, maybe particularly in our culture, is that you need to be kind to yourself. And that being kind to yourself means you need to shake off the harshness of a traditional Christian teaching because we know how to be kinder to ourselves than God does. And that was just such a great reminder that no, Really, God knows how to be kinder to us than we know how to be to ourselves. We're not as kind to ourselves as we would like to give ourselves credit for. And so I love the fact that his thoughts of compassion towards us 
are so much better than ours towards ourselves. There's, and there's this continued theme of compassion that Ortland picks up on in describing the Lord's heart uh, as expressed even through the prophet Jeremiah in, in what's called the Book of Consolation in Jeremiah 30 through 33. He says, expecting judgment, the Lord surprises them with comfort because he had pulled them into his heart and they could not send their way out of it. And that is just such a comforting thought. He says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then in Jeremiah 31 and 20, the Lord uses the language, my heart yearns for him. My dear son, my darling child. I mean, what descriptive language of the Lord's heart towards us. And Ortland describes this yearning as the turbulence of divine longing pouring out of his heart. So out of his heart flows mercy, out of ours reluctance to receive it. And we've talked about that over and over again on this podcast. And so we feel that his heart for us wavers according to our loveliness. And it, it moves us to this feeling like we've got to earn his love. And it moves us to this um, performance-based actions towards the Lord and um, trying to somehow secure his love. So how often do you allow yourself to consider that the Lord's heart yearns for you? How might meditating on this truth shape how you approach him in prayer or your willingness to draw close to him in failure? I find that although my mind might know that I would love to be loved for who I am at the deepest level that I am really uncomfortable with that. Like you've said, and it's the uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable to be loved in weakness and neediness and imperfection, I think. And I learned that a little bit just by being married to my husband. And when we got married, I found that I wanted him to love me based off of, I knew that this was not only just wrong, but this wouldn't work out well. But I wanted to earn it in some ways. Like I wanted I wanted to have something that he couldn't resist. That's what it is, right? So I wanted something that I had that you couldn't resist. Therefore, I was in control. But to be loved when I knew that that I was unlovely that's a really tender, vulnerable thing. Mm -hmm. And it's a silly example, but I specifically remember a time that we were going to go on a bike ride and I had bought these new pair of biking shorts. And the day before had been a, a, I feel good when I look in the mirror day. And then the day I put those shorts on the second time was somehow I am fat from yesterday mm -hmm. to today. And I'm humiliated. Like I put these shorts on and I just had this wave of shame that came over me from the way that my legs looked in these shorts, which it's embarrassing to say that really and be recorded saying it, but it's true. And he came up into the bedroom and he's like, are you ready to go? I'm like, I can't go. I literally fell on the bed and he's like, what is wrong? I'm like, look at my legs. And he's like, he didn't know what to do. He thought I've never seen this happen before. And in that moment, I was embarrassed in multiple ways. I was embarrassed because I felt like my legs looked bad. And, but I was embarrassed that I was upset that my legs looked bad, right? So I was caught in the vanity and, and everything else. And I became so irritable and angry towards him, like accusatory uh, towards him that if 
whatever, then I wouldn't feel this way, blah, blah, blah. And it was really eye-opening to me. And he was so gracious to me and t- tender mm-hmm. to me, but it didn't feel like one of those sweet romantic moments that you visualize. I was mm-hmm. so uncomfortable all the way through mm-hmm. it. But that was a really growth, a growth point in our marriage because he stayed in it with me. And I think with the Lord, there, I might think that I'm willing to be exposed, but there are places that when you get that deep and that tender, it feels super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I would have to relinquish the control that I, I don't have any control, but whatever control I might think I have, I have to relinquish it and let myself be loved outside of however, whatever construct I've come up with to make that love feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, it's a wonderful thing. And it's sort of a terrifying thing. And yet as the Lord has done it in my life, it's a beautiful and safe thing, but it doesn't always feel that way on the front end. Right, it comes to a vulnerability that is just utterly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And mm-hmm. in a similar way, my singleness has been mm-hmm. a learning um, experience for me in, in terms of just knowing God's heart for me and how he does yearn for me and love me well, mm-hmm. how his grace is sufficient and uh, often I think I went through well I know I went through a long period of battling with this idea and having dated some people uh, along the way uh, believers even and and that not lasting or something breaking down um, in it and trying to come to grips with my own singleness and a desire I had to not be single and along the way, somewhere along the way, the Lord brought me to a place where I was able to realize the blessing of my singleness and really how the Lord highlights his great love for me in my singleness by supplying every need that I thought I desired in marriage mm-hmm. that he really supplies and fulfills for me. Um, I used to think it was so cheesy. Um, and I, th- I think it was Kathy Keller at a conference once who mentioned that phrase, Jesus is my husband. <laughs> and I used to be like, but I don't want Jesus to be my husband. <laughs> I want a husband for my own. Like, and, and truly. Everybody's <laughs> <husband. Yeah. laughs> to share that one. <laughs> to share that Um <laughs> And so there was this sense of which I was thinking I was missing out on something that I felt was a a desire, really I was claiming as a desire, really felt was a need and how the Lord has shown me and revealed himself in ways that I know now, even though sometimes I do feel that sorrow and I do feel um, lonely at times and I do still desire to be married if that's what God has for me, but I think I'm able to more embrace that if if that's the Lord's will because I know he satisfies me. Um, and there's uh, a song that Audrey Asad, um, in it she writes, you liberate me from my own noise and my own chaos, from the chains of a lesser law you set me free. You satisfy me until I'm quiet and confident. And truly I'm not confident. I'm not a confident person. And at times I kind of go, you know, I'll, I'll mess up or I'll be lonely or I'll fall into sin and I'll, and I'll think, this is why the Lord hasn't given me a husband mm. <laughs> because I'm not 
this mm-hmm. enough or that enough or I can't be, you know, but truly he's, he has made me to lie down in green pastures. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't always believe that. I believe, and I also need the Lord to help my unbelief, but he really has taught my heart so much over um, really particularly the past few years about how deep his love is for me. And I just appreciate that. I appreciate the thing that I'm missing out on. Hmm. Isn't that something? <laughs> the Lord can do that. Supply that and the thing that you're missing out on. Yeah. That's so good. We talked about it on the last podcast, how it is the spirit that even allows us to have that capacity to know that that's his heart for us, mm-hmm. that it is to, to be able to even receive that kind of love from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to know that he's yearning, that's the spirit at work in us, growing that capacity to receive that love from the Lord. As we continue to probe the depths of his heart, we encounter um, Christ being rich in mercy. And I love that he delineates between Christ being rich in mercy and not becoming rich in mercy. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to worry about him having to work up enough mercy to give us that it just flows out of who he is uh, generously. I love the quote from Goodwin, as the father, as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, he hates the disease and that provokes him to pity the affected the more. Our sins are motives for him to pity us more. So that God is rich in mercy means that our regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, Ortland tells us, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about us that most make us cringe, uh, make him hug the hardest. And that is a powerful love that he's expressing there, a powerful mercy. So why do you think it's so difficult for us to wrap our minds around this kind of mercy? I think this is difficult for me because I think about how little mercy I have for my husband. Um, how small, like even small things where, you know, this morning I noticed that when he left the house at 630, he left milk out by the coffee maker and I passed it three hours, two hours, three hours later and I had been... <laughs> sitting out there and how quickly I jump to anger and resist resentment towards him. Um, for, for just the smallest of things like that. And I think I have to remind myself that this is something more than I, than I will ever know that that mercy that comes from God, that he is rich in it. And like we talked about that that is a part of his nature and that, when I think about it, I think I'm so repulsed by my sin. I cannot fathom that it would draw him near, like this says, that I'm so fixated on being moral and hating the sinful parts of myself and and getting like getting so mad at myself when I am quick to be angry at my husband. So those thoughts about um that this is not somewhere that mercy passes through, but mercy abides in him. That idea is just so hard for me to fathom because I, as a human, I can only give so much. And that's my natural tendency is to compare my human nature to the nature of other humans rather than thinking about what the Lord is like. Yeah, I love that you um, mentioned that. I think we're all, we all have that quick, you know, reactivity rather than 
response. And uh, particularly right now, it's, you can hop on any social media platform <laughs> and see what anyone has to say about any given topic of the day. And it's super easy to feel that reactivity, um, it, not just on social media, but in conversations, and particularly with people we're closest with. We're all the more quick to anger. And I really think it's hard and difficult. I think what makes it the most difficult for us to wrap our minds around this idea that he's rich in mercy is because being made in the image of God, I think sometimes we're so me-centered that we think, oh, God is like us. Mm-hmm. And so we're quick to respond in an unmerciful way. And so when when we're trying to internalize this mercy from God, we just think of ourselves and kind of going, well, that must be disappointing or <laughs> this must make him furious or this is something I've been trying to work on and still I'm not there. Surely I'm exhausting the mercy and kindness of God. But I liked what Ortland said, um, that he is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. Um, and and it, it really, it's who he is. That's why he acts in merciful ways, not because he has billions and billions of currency of mercy, but actually because mercy is the essence of who he is. So that's really hard to understand. Yeah, and it's, and it's hard for us to believe that he is rich in mercy. You're right, because I mean, we can often think of uh, God as just being a little bit better than a good man. Yeah. Right, you know, and so but for it to be the essence of who he is, that's a, that's a whole different situation. And Ortland points to our lawish hearts being the reason why it's so hard for us to get our minds around this concept that the Lord is rich in mercy. And he talks about our propensity to seek to earn the Lord's love, living for the heart of God and not from it, doing works unto approval, performance-based acceptance, and how that represents resistance to Christ's very heart. I love this quote where um, Ortland says, and if you trace this fountain of scurrying haste, in all its various manifestations, down to the root. You don't find childhood difficulties or Myers-Briggs diagnosis or Freudian impulses. You find gospel deficit. You find lack of felt awareness of Christ's heart. So what truths do you rehearse to give your heart rest when you are made aware of places in your own life where you are working for the heart of God and not from it? Well, I think for me, first, it's a, a realization of how deep it goes, um, what I'm speaking to. You know, when you said in that quote, it's various manifestations. It's so true. We could have an idea of legalism being uh, maybe sort of prudish. You know, I'm a legalist because I don't do certain things, or I'm really strict about making sure I do certain things. And we see a legalist as self-righteous about those type of activities. But that legalism infiltrates everything I do. It might even infiltrate the fact that I'm against legalism, right? So I I sort of feel good about myself because I don't adhere to that type of legalism. (laughs) I'm legalistic about that. It just, it's it's that sin that gets down into all the the cracks and crevices and we can't even really comprehend how deep and how invasive that it truly is. And it's been helpful for me to see how many ways it pops its head up in my own life and to repent of it versus trying to... uh, either push it down or solve it. So to me, it's to recognize it for what it is, uh, to recognize the Lord's graciousness in that and say this is at the very heart of who I am. Um, Ortland 
references Galatians 3.10, and the way that it's translated in the NIV is all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And he says the the literal translation is as many as are of works are under a curse. So it's just a slight difference. It doesn't mean that one's wrong, but he's emphasizing the fact that it's not just when we do works of righteousness that we're being legalistic, where we do works of righteousness for the Lord's heart that we're being legalistic, but we are of a legalistic heart. And so recognizing that has been helpful, helpful to me. And then, hmm, what truths do I rehearse when I recognize it? I think it's repentance. And being in the Word is really helpful to me in this place to see how the Lord engages with me. I often see it in how He has engaged with His people historically. So even being in the Old Testament, which you could think, you could be prone to think that the Old Testament is more legalistic. You have the law, you haven't yet seen the saving grace of Christ, and so maybe God seems harsh there, or the law seems harsh or whatever. But to see that his purposes through his law was to draw his people to repentance and reliance on his covenant, and to see all those heroes of faith that we might hold up and want to try to emulate, and to see how broken they were how broken david was how broken moses was i was just having a conversation with my youngest child in the car and somehow we got on the talk topic of old testament heroes and i said why do you think they're called old testament heroes and he's like because they did what they were supposed to or something along those lines like well actually no 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 they didn't why are they called heroes of the faith and and he said because they did what they were supposed to or something along those lines and i said no No, it's because they didn't do what they were supposed to. And by faith, they believed in the mercies of God. And that's why they're heroes. They're heroes of faith and what they believed in. And so I think for me, it's it's being in the word. I can't always convince myself just in my, I mean, I can't convince myself anyway in my own mind. And I need more of scripture and particularly those Old Testament accounts and stories to uh, bring that to life to me of, of what my heart is, but yet what his heart is towards me. I think Amber... I, one, this was hard for me to answer because I don't know that I am great about um, rehearsing these truths to myself, but I do know that when I spend time with God and when I seek his heart, it's easier for me to live out of his heart. Mm -hmm. So when I am reading scripture, actively engaged with it and actively praying to him, that that helps me more so to seek his heart and live it out. But I think the largest area that this is a problem for me comes when I'm talking about the church. Like that's where I'm more prone to be lawish. And mm-hmm. when I was in college, which I only graduated college two years ago, so I'm not that far out. Uh, but when I was in college, I started working at a church and that was where I spent almost all of my time um, outside of classes, even I worked there as part of a class. Like that was where a lot of my time was spent and it became really hard for me to say what, well, what was I doing at one point when I graduated, it felt like I really actually feel like I was doing most of this because I felt like it was the right thing to do rather than uh, working from the heart of the Lord. So moving here and being in a church as large as First Pres, and again, working here, this full-time job. So um, that has been a real challenge to me to um, 
especially in that way and serving in the church to not just be concerned with the law and what I think is, you know, the Christian thing to do, but rather to seek God's heart and know what he desires for me. So rather than, am I hearing you right when you're saying rather than considering it sort of a righteous thing to do to work in a church? Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. yes. Rather that, than that, going like, mm-hmm. oh, well, this, yes, this is righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to be the best. Gotcha. Gotcha. As Morgan was saying, we, we do. We think of God as being the same as us. We project our own capacity to love onto God. And our love tends to look more like we love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit, but Jesus loves to the end. You see on page 198 of Ortland's book. Um, and then his love, though, his love, he will love you to the end because he cannot bear to do otherwise. No exit strategy, no prenup. He'll love to the end, to the end of our lives, to the end of our sins, to the end of our temptations, to the end of our fears, Bunyan says. So ladies, how might living in the reality of the Lord's love and delight affect how we see ourselves? How might it affect how we see others and how might it affect the way that we love? I really struggle with um, self-contempt in many capacities and um, body image, uh, the way I, you know, interact with others. Oh my gosh, that was so stupid what I said on that podcast, <laughs> you know, like, no, just like all yeah. these things that I, uh, mm-hmm. I really am very unkind to myself on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I think I'm learning how to be more kind to myself through learning the heart of a tender father, mm-hmm. even through just learning the character of God character of God, like you said, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament as well, and um, learning who Jesus is, and almost, um, in a way, thinking of good parents and how you would care for your child if your child were saying ugly things about themselves or their sibling, mm-hmm. more likely their sibling, um, that you would tend to that, you would tend to their heart in that. You would shut it down first, and then you would um, tenderly teach them, second, how to love. And so I think um, the reality of God's love, that we will never see the end to his goodness, of his goodness, that learning how to see myself in that light, in the light in which he sees me, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion, and I will never see the end of God's goodness. And that in effect turns outward as you begin to really learn that personally, that love for yourself. I think um, particularly with whom people with whom we disagree or that we get into conflicts with, if we can see them the way Christ sees us, the way God as a father sees us, then we can have compassion and we can have tenderness and we can have mercy for them we can love them even if we don't agree with their opinion or even if they've hurt us um, or even if we see them doing things that uh, are harmful to others. And um, I think that's kind of been something that really has, I've been learning, especially in this last year, um, that I am quick to be angry at others for um 
but in the past, probably the past, I would say a few months, learning more of Christ's character and his patience with me and his tenderness with me. Um, and I think through the preaching, faithful preaching of God's word, um, I've really started to be convicted about just even the thoughts I have in my head about dialogue that's happening or interactions that happen with others. So I'm grateful for that and pray that the Lord brings that to completion too. <laughs> I think you're right. I, I think we're never more aware of the Lord's love for us and our awareness of ourselves and we're pouring out that love in difficult situations mm-hmm. where we know I couldn't have conjured up that kind of love if I had tried. And so that has mm-hmm. to be the power of the Lord's love through me. Go ahead. I was going to say, just how the two are tied together, how one flows in and and how that love flows in and it flows out. I resonate with what you're saying about self-contempt. And as you were saying that, I thought, what is it about me that almost feels more comfortable with self-contempt than with the phrase loving yourself or allowing the Lord to love you maybe or whatever that would be. And I was wondering if, if maybe sometimes we think that if we focus too much on the fact that the Lord delights in us and that he is tender towards us and that he pursues us and that he sees us as beautiful and all of that sort of thing, that then we will come alongside of what feels like a cultural trend to to love yourself, to mm-hmm. believe that everything is good about yourself. And somehow that self-contempt, I'm like, no, no, no it's, it's safer to believe everything's bad about yourself, right? And I don't believe everything's mm-hmm. good about myself. I know nothing's good about myself, so I'm just going to believe everything's bad about myself and could think that maybe the theology that would that would promote the love of God and the tenderness of God and how much he delights in us would actually be promoting a wrong mm-hmm. view of self. And in reading this book and, and trying to work that through myself, I'm realizing, no, what it does, it does not do that. It doesn't, when I really get what the love of the Lord is, because it's who he is, like we're saying, this is his character, it's his heart, it, it, it flows out onto me, but it comes from him. And when I grasp that and get that and can start to absorb that and to believe that and to find that safe and true, then my eyes actually go away from myself. I've become more secure mm-hmm. and they, they go on to him in praise and, and I respond in love to him. And then like you're saying, I, I respond more in love to other people. I'm, I'm more secure. I'm less self-centered yeah. when I know that I'm delighted in by the Lord because that's who his heart is. Mm-hmm. And I just was trying to think about how that would affect my parenting and this feeling that I have with my children, my oldest is, is just turned 16 and about to have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old. And so we're in those teen years. And how much I can respond in, in fear or control. Like this idea that if I see that anything that's wrong, wrong choices, wrong decisions, sin. And as they get older, it can become... I don't know if it's more prominent than when they're young and they're doing all these crazy things, but it has consequences that are deep and that I own and I feel afraid of. And because I love them, I want to just put my hands on them and control them. And, and I lose the delight sometimes every time when I go to that type of control. And I just was reminded that the Lord knows my sin. He is more committed to my righteousness and perfecting that in me than I am even close Mm -hmm. to myself. And yet he is patient and he is tender and he delights in me along the way. And, and shouldn't that be how I parent my children? You know, not to lose all of that in favor of this control, but to 
to know that the Lord loves them and I can be tender mm-hmm. and patient and delighting in them mm-hmm. um, all, all, all along the way. Yeah. I love that you mentioned self-forgetfulness. Um, there's a the book that I'm reading by Martin Laird. The, he has a chapter in there called The Liturgy of Our Wounds, and he talks a lot about how we can be distracted by our own sinfulness. Um, we can be distracted from repenting from our own sinfulness by the fact that we're sinning. Yeah. And so we sin, and then we go on this uh, shame rant to ourselves, and it pulls us so far away from repentance because then we've made our woundedness and our sinfulness the central idea of where our mind is now focused and meditating on. Uh, and I'd love to, for the Lord, and, and my prayer would be for the Lord to help me in those times just to notice my sin and guide me in the way of repentance so that I'm not just going in this cycle of thinking something terrible about myself and then thinking something else terrible about myself because I thought about that thing that mm-hmm. was terrible about myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or sinning and then shame spiraling. Um, and never really coming full circle to the realization of the love of Christ that heals that woundedness. Um, but instead, I'm just making a liturgy out of my woundedness. Mm-hmm. And then I do it again and again and again. And, um, it, it's so counterproductive. Well, that's the tricky thing about shame, too, is is repentance then seems like further harshness, mm-hmm. at least to me. Yeah. When I'm in shame, I don't want to repent because I could think repentance is more shame, but no, repentance is freedom from mm-hmm. shame. And I, I feel like shame really, the evil one uses that to deceive us and keep us. I love how both of you have, in, in your own ways, described how preoccupation with self is at the center of, of each of those things. Self-contempt, the shame. Um, and our just inability to love because then the focus, you feel the freedom when your eyes are off of you. Return to Christ when we return to the one who is loving you with this everlasting love that the one is telling us about. And so, not only will he love us until the end, but we're buried in his heart forevermore. That's such strong language. Mm-hmm. Um, Ephesians 2 7 says, So that in the coming ages uh, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. And as we've said, sometimes our words towards ourselves are, This is not kind. And he desires to have them to extend this kindness to us forevermore. But what does this mean in our real time lives? Well, it means that our fallenness now is not an obstacle to enjoying heaven. It is the key ingredient, he says, for us to enjoy. That repentance that we shy away from, it's what ushers us into his presence. And it's what um, allows him to extend to us the grace that we need. This is that thing that we've done that sent our life into a meltdown. That is where God in Christ becomes more real than in this life and more wonderful to us in the next. Mm-hmm. Love that. All right, so let me ask this. In, in what struggle in your own life has the Lord met you and given you greater capacity to enjoy him? And what in particular do you look forward to enjoying in being radically free of sin and brokenness? Well, I alluded to the fact when I told the story about my deep shame over my legs in spandex shorts that I have struggled with body image issues pretty much as long as I can remember. And 
it wasn't until mm, maybe five years, maybe a little bit longer than that, that I, I think the Lord helped me see more clearly what I was exchanging. Like I had that moment of realizing that I had exchanged the ability to enjoy the Lord himself, his people and his creation for a fixation on the enjoyment that I mistakenly thought would come from being found beautifully acceptable. And it was like, I remember just looking around thinking, I don't know how to go out and enjoy a sunset. I don't know how to enter into a room and just engage with these people and just enjoy them because my mm-hmm. mind has been so fixated on these tiny little things that I want to improve in myself that I see it everywhere I go or I compare everywhere I go or things that are beautiful and should be beautiful aren't mm-hmm. because my definition, my idea of beauty has shrunk so small. And several years, I mean, I felt, I realized in that moment that I was bound to that. But at the same time, I was too afraid to step away from it. Like I was too afraid to step away from those thought patterns and the actions that I, that followed them because I didn't really believe it if I gave that up. I knew I needed to give it up, but I was too scared to give it up. I knew it was harming me and I didn't want it, but I wouldn't let it go. Mm-hmm. And it was this, this struggling place to be. And I would cry to the Lord about it. I would cry to my husband about it. And I remember the time, again, we're on a bike trip, it's probably the spandex shorts in, in England. <laughs> and I was crying to John about it. Just, I'm so tired of thinking about this. I'm so tired of struggling with this. I just want to be free. I just want relief. Mm-hmm. And in that time, John told me, you know, maybe the relief that you think that you want so badly isn't the relief that you actually need. He's like, you, it, he helped me see the relief I wanted in that moment was I just wanted to be free to feel good about myself Mm -hmm. that's what I wanted but he's like maybe the Lord is using this to bring you deeper and closer to him and that he hasn't just eradicated the struggle that you have with it but he's using it to draw you closer and that really is the truth the Lord just kept that struggle and through that struggle kept speaking to me and kindly showing me things and convicting me and leading me to repentance and bringing about new life over just a long time in little ways and recently i was biking <laughs> i did not intend to bring up biking <laughs> they so live on that times. bike they live on that the bike. theme of my life i guess i was biking uh, on fripp island and i was wearing shorts <laughs> and i remember looking down at my no 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 i wasn't even looking the sun was shining and had i been looking it would have been all over my cellulite, like every bump, crater curve, whatever. It was just fully exposed because that's what sunshine does. And I was blissfully unaware. Not that I didn't know that that was there because I'm still cognizant of that. But I was looking at the ocean. I was looking at the trees. I was looking at the foliage. I was caught up in the beauty of the Lord. I remember thinking, Lord, this is the moment when I realize you have really done a work. Like I am even wanting to praise you about my legs and I'm not having to drum that up and it was just sweet that the Lord was doing that and so I do think for me that that I mean we've said this that continual self-forgetfulness and praise of him it just leads to so much more enjoyment as opposed to my thinking that I'm going to get for myself what I want it's just deadening and that's what the Lord's going to continue doing for us as we move in further into him it's just that delight in him as he delights in us we end this right where we started come to him mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. We, when we come to Him, we find that fullness of joy mm-hmm. that we can't find in our own self-effort, in our own striving. 
Portland tells us that the Christian life boils down to those these two steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see step one. Mm. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. If you knew his heart, you would. Amen. Well, on that note of encouragement, thank you for joining us for our discussion of Gentle and Lowly. We have really enjoyed diving into Dane Ortland's book and taking you along with us. Take us with you while you walk your dogs or eat a picnic in the park. Join us back here in August when we kick off our new season with Kathleen Nielsen. Can't wait to welcome her. Next season, we'll be discussing the book of Joshua and Kathleen's book, All God's Good Promises. Sure hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of pure shining to cheer it after the rain.